Well, that's a fun reading, isn't it, for second Sunday of Advent? How do you feel about being judged? By others or even by God? The prospect makes some of us uneasy. There's a signature scene in some of Alfred Hitchcock's films. The lead character, let's say Cary Grant, is driving along a freeway and suddenly he notices in his car mirror, immediately on his tail, a police car following him. And the camera just stays on Cary Grant for a good minute or so. We're feeling what he's feeling. Have I done something wrong, either to my knowledge or not? He can't help feel guilty. He can't help feeling judged. And then just as suddenly, the police car pulls away. Now, you may wonder why I'm preaching this morning on a passage that begins as an attack upon those who are wealthy about how they steward their resources when we've just been celebrating an amazingly generous response to gift day. But I've chosen this passage because it's about justice and judgment. And these are essential themes of Advent. Hitchcock was Catholic, and he was forever exploring the theme of judgment in his films. And James's opening discussion about the role of money in the world is framed in the context of the coming of the Lord, Christ's return, and by a single telling image, the judge is standing at the door. The judge is standing at your door, and the judge is standing at my door. Is this good news or bad news? If you're anything like me, your knees may start to quiver. This all smells to me of punishment at school. And of course, our culture hates the word judgment. Well, let's begin by noting James's comments on the abusive use of wealth, whether it's investing in things that decay rather than in treasures in heaven, or pursuing a lifestyle of extravagance and luxury, or profit built on the backs of others. You see, Advent names the things of darkness and the evils of the world from which we are to turn. It's a season that invites us to identify the wrongdoing both outside us and within us, both those that we can act to rectify and those that we feel entirely powerless to change. And at the start of this passage, James takes the baton from Jesus, who in turn has taken it from the Old Testament prophets, and James calls out injustice. He names it and he specifically targets it. And the reek of first century Middle Eastern culture is really strong. The passage is clearly of its time. Or is it? Let me bring you some extracts from newspapers and news headlines gathered on a single day this week. Item one, quote, it's being called the great reversal 
After decades of progress, the international goal of eradicating extreme poverty by 2030 is in jeopardy as developing countries battling the coronavirus sacrifice their health and education systems to pay Western and Chinese creditors. It's predicted that African countries will pay out more than 10 billion pounds to creditors this year and next year. More than half will go to city asset management firms like BlackRock, which employs former Chancellor George Osborne at £650,000 per year. Item two, Indian workers in factories supplying Marks and Spencers, Tesco's, Sainsbury's and Ralph Lauren have told the BBC that they're being subjected to exploitative conditions. We're made to work continuously, often through the night, sleeping at 3 a.m., then waking up by 5 a.m. to another full, full day, one woman said. Our bosses don't care, they're only bothered about production. Item three, estate agents are reporting a surge in sales of vast country estates and former castle properties. The world's super rich are seeking to escape from coronavirus lockdowns in cities by buying multi-million pound English country estates to create Downton Abbey lifestyles, complete with butlers, cooks, housekeepers, and armies of gardeners. And then finally, item four. Pretty Little Thing's so-called Pink Friday sale has infuriated customers and environmental activists alike, with clothes being sold for as little as 6p, calling into question the company's moral and environmental ethics. Pretty Little Thing has recently been discovered to be exploiting workers, most notably in Leicester, where workers were reportedly paid just £3.50 per hour while being offered no protective clothing against coronavirus. Much of Pretty Little Thing's clothing is also made from polyester and plastics, making it unsustainable and contributing to the global climate crisis. Well, as my colleague Simon Ponsonby often says, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Where is God in all of this? We're continually being told at the moment that COVID-19 is shaking our world, and maybe it is laying bare some foundations, but as we've just heard, the structures of power and of wealth disparity remain. You may have seen the heartrending BBC report this week about local Burnley Church's distribution of free food packages. Hungry children were literally tearing at the bags of food. Injustice remains as strong as ever. The rich-poor gap is widening. More people are slipping into poverty in our nation, with those at the bottom frequently exploited for others' profit. And yet James's critique in this passage isn't offered from the perspective of a left-wing newspaper or news site, as a couple of my examples are. It's framed in the context of the grand finale of human history, caught in that phrase, the coming 
of the Lord. In Advent, we stand consciously on the frontier between the present age and the age to come. And we stare into the face of the powers of sin and death and the demonic. And we say and cry, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because it is only the second coming of Christ that will set all things right. The judge is standing at the door, says James. And the figure of the judge in Scripture is less about condemnation. The judge is the person who comes and restores order. The divine judge is coming to overturn injustice and redeem the creation that he loves. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, talking about Aslan, his figure for Christ. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. So my first point is this. God's judgment will right all wrongs in the age to come. That newspaper report spoke of the great reversal which many African nations are facing. They've built up their education and health systems, and now they're going to risk all of those in order to repay Western debt. Well, mercifully, that great reversal will be countered by the great reversal of reversals when Christ comes again, when the judge will come through the door, when Christ will return. And then there'll be an accounting for everything evil in our world. Can you imagine the good news of that for the exploited workers and nations of our world? If that's you, take heart. The cries of the harvesters, James said, will be heard. James says that those who fatten their hearts at the expense of others will face a reckoning. So Advent asks us to remain strong in the knowledge of all that is coming. And that's very good news as we look out at the evils and the injustices of our world. Secondly, God invites our trust in the here and now. His judgment invites our trust in the here and now. Because this is at one level about trusting in God's good judgment to come and releasing it into his hands and being able to bear our sufferings with courage. James was writing to a, a scattered church of persecuted churches in the diaspora in modern-day Turkey. And it was a suffering, oppressed church. And it needed to hear, it needed to be reminded of the final act in human history when all wrongdoing will be overturned and every wrong that's been committed in human history will be set right. But that doesn't imply that you or I are to be fatalistic and passive in the meantime. In 1944, during World War II, while he was writing Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien wrote this to his son, Christopher. 
evil labors with vast power and perpetual success, but in vain, preparing always only the soil for unexpected good to sprout in. And James describes in this passage the unexpected good that we can do in three ways. While we wait for Christ's coming and evil's defeat, we are to be prophetic, we're to be patient, and we're to persevere. We're to follow the example of the prophets who, quote, spoke in the name of the Lord. James has just modeled for this, us, us in this, in speaking out against injustice, financial injustice. And as we're led by the plumb line of Scripture and the guiding of the Holy Spirit, we're to do the same. And at times this will bring us suffering, which is why we must be patient. James uses the words be patient or patience here four times. And our culture struggles with patience. Margaret Thatcher once said, I'm extraordinarily patient, provided I get my own way in the end. Well, we will get our own way if it's according to the Lord's way, but it won't be through the behavior of a strong-willed politician. It won't come in that way at all. The way that Jesus models is different. The Jewish people expected a martial Messiah who would come and liberate them from the Romans. But Christ wears an armor of light. He's the healer. He's the reconciler. He's the one who tells Peter to put up his sword in Gethsemane. He always acts slowly and gently. And this is why we must persevere. A late 19th century missionary wrote of how a huge pillar which held up the gallery of her Arab house in Algiers collapsed one day. It just left a great pile of masonry and dust. And what was the cause? The work of a couple of bakers in the bakery next door. By night they kneaded the bread using a kind of seesaw device. And that had sent vibrations through the two houses until finally, one day, the pillar just collapsed. Well, every quiet act of resistance that you and I make as we say no to the powers of sin, death, and Satan, it's like one of those vibrations. We may never see the collapse of those strongholds, but there will be a final tremor which brings them tumbling down. The truth is, is that we are all almost certainly doing greater good than we can know or imagine. If we resist keeping our biblical integrity, manifesting lives of holiness, we are exerting influence in our world. And each act will be one of those vibrations doing that nighttime work. Now having said this, James also says, do not grumble against one another. The judge is standing at the door. When Jesus comes again, he 
He wants to meet a united and disciplined church, which is not divided by complaining. He will come to bear his teeth against systemic injustice, and he will put winter to death. But he also longs to meet each one of us, and he won't be indifferent to the spiritual state of our lives. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 is quite clear that our salvation will not be at stake. God has not destined us for wrath, he says, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. But Paul still wants us to be fit, in a fit state, to meet our master and our maker. He writes, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And we'll know at that time a purifying and a refining as the last parts of our old sinful self are purged. So no grumbling. And let that coming day shape how you're living now. Behave in Christ's absence just as you would in his presence. And as James wrote earlier, all those who endure faithfully, despite the pressures on them, will receive the crown of life. That's what we can look forward to. He's going to put the crown of life on each person's head. But I wonder if all this talk about a judge standing at the door and judgment is giving you still that kind of Cary Grant feeling. Wouldn't you rather hear of a God of love? Well, of course, in our passage we read, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So how do we square that with that earlier sentence, the judge is standing at the door? I remember pastoral meetings with a dear man who often doubted his salvation. He felt the judge was at his door and the judge was going to condemn him. And that's a terrible lie because Paul is quite explicit in Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friend, though, couldn't shake this painful contradiction in his faith life. One day, his God was the God of love, and the next day, his God was the God of judgment. And of course, some people try to drive this wedge between how they describe the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It's judgment or love. It's a false division. Let me counter with a story. In the novel, Crime and Punishment, by Dostoevsky, a university student commits a murder. He wants to test the limits of existence, but he's overtaken by guilt. And late in the novel, tormented, he confesses his crime to a young woman, Sonia, who has prostituted herself to support her family and her alcoholic father. And Raskolnikov, the student, he expects judgment from her. But she's actually horrified by the pain that he's in. She cries out, what have you done to yourself? What have you done to yourself? 
Christianity tells the story of a people who, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us turned to his or her own way. And of the God whose cry from the heart is, what have you done to yourself? Sonia confounds Raskolnikov entirely by insisting on staying at his side as he is punished and sentenced to exile in Siberia. She's full of compassion and mercy, and she exerts a redeeming influence on him. Legally, he's punished. Spiritually, he's forgiven. But our Savior Jesus Christ goes further than this, because while at the end of history we're told by the Apostles' Creed that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead, Scripture shows him in his earthly life submitting to the judges of this world. Consider, the judge of the universe who is coming again is the same God who submits to judgment at the cross. The judge is at the door, the judge standing at our door is the judge who at Calvary took the judgment due on us. In the words of the theologian Karl Barth, he is the judge judged in our place. The French painter Honoré Daumier composed a painting once. It's called The Free Pardon. It's a courtroom scene. And in it, a lawyer is caught pointing in triumph at a big crucifix that hangs on a wall behind the head of the judge. And we presume that a free pardon is about to be given to the accused. Because in the words of James earlier in this letter, mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, at the cross, mercy triumphs over judgment. But God's love goes even further because we're not only acquitted, we're not only spared a spiritual Siberia, We're dressed in Christ's robes of righteousness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the great reversal of Christianity. Because in my third point, God's judgment is held within the embrace of God's love. I remember two weeks in my life when I really got this revelation. They were the two most precious weeks in my life. I wish I could live them again. I wasn't a Christian. I'd reached the end of myself. I couldn't deny any longer the many mistakes I'd made in my life, the things I'd done and the things I'd left undone. But as I went on an Alpha course and I heard biblical teaching, I was suddenly convicted of my sin. But in that same instant, God gave me a revelation about the cross. I understood that at Golgotha, Jesus came as the judge judged in my place. He didn't come to condemn me. He came to save me and to offer new life 
And he did that out of love. For years, like a, like a character in one of those Hitchcock films, I'd been stuffing down my guilt whenever I felt it. Because I didn't want to deal with the implications of a holy and just God. It was like I was swimming upstream in a river, battling against the current. I was resisting any doctrine of judgment because I felt it would be too condemning. And now at my conversion, I turned round and I swam downstream with the current instead. As I battled to go upstream, God had seemed only judge. Travelling downstream, borne by the current, I was looking into the face of the God of love. Had that river changed? No, it was the same river. He was the same God. Had I changed? Well, yes, my position had changed entirely. And this is God's open invitation. If you're quivering this morning at any sense of God's judgment, God's hand of judgment on you, you can come to the cross and experience his forgiveness, his mercy, and that total cleansing. The God of Advent is the judge at the door. And the God of Advent is the God of compassion and mercy. He entered history to save our souls and he will come again to make all things new. And this is what my friend, who I was pastoring, needed to hear. He needed to know that Jesus didn't come to bring judgment, but to bear his judgment. He didn't need to fear judgment because judgment has been passed in Christ. And when Christ comes again, he'll defeat the last enemy, death. And he'll cast our ancient foe, Satan, down into that sulfurous pit. And it's because of this that we can sing in the words of Charles Wesley, rejoice in glorious hope, our Lord and Judge shall come. Well, I'd love to invite you to stand and let's come into the presence of the Holy Spirit in an attentive way as we ask him how he wants to speak to each one of us.